morning, church. How are you this morning? Oh, that was a mix. That's great. Happy Super Bowl Sunday for those of you who celebrate that. I celebrate the snacks at Super Bowl Sunday, and that's about it. Thank you. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Andrea. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Christ City, and I'm, I'm so glad you've joined us today. I just want to welcome you again, um, whether you have ventured out in this gloominess to join us in the cafeteria at Minor, or if you're on YouTube. Hi, YouTube. Uh, still so weird, I don't know, but I just feel like we should acknowledge them. Do you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> I gotta tell you, um, I've been so encouraged by your presence this month. Uh, this year was a new year. Um, I know that there are just a lot of things that you're each bringing in. Uh, and I know there's a lot of things that are happening in the world. Um, and we're all just sort of carrying different things as we walk through these doors or turn on our computers every week. Um, I feel like uh, it can feel like there's a lot of dumpster fires out there. Yeah. Um, and I'm just, I've been encouraged by your presence, uh, by our worshiping together. I truly feel like God is wanting to meet us and has been meeting us where we are these past few weeks. And, and just being together is, is a part of that, too. Um, I've really been enjoying studying the Gospel of Mark with you also. I hope that you've been enjoying that, too. I feel like I'm, whenever we go through a book of the Bible, I learn so much. I've been learning so much with you. Um, and honestly, I feel like uh, God has been using Scripture to meet me, too. And um, frankly, I don't always feel that way about scripture. Um, so I'm grateful. So as we begin this morning, I just, uh, I wanna pray for us. I wanna pray with you, um, just for a, a marked sense of God's presence, uh, clarity around the spirit and how the spirit is moving and wants to be moving today. So let's, let's pray. God, we, um, we come to you this morning uh, with gratitude for uh, being able to meet together. We thank you that um, you promise your presence uh, all the time. We thank you that you have been meeting us uh, in a particular, tangible way. God, we pray this morning um, for discernment to hear from you in the midst of everything. We thank you for the freedom to bring everything that we're carrying. We thank you that you care about all the things that we care about. We ask God for a move of your spirit this morning. Would you make it clear that, um, that you are here, that you are inviting us into something? God, wait. may we, um, may our meeting this morning, our gathering, our singing, our listening, our speaking, uh, just be marked by your presence. We are grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so I have a question for you. Um, do you guys like board games? Is that like a, oh, lots of people like, okay. What are some of your favorite board games? Just, come on. Scrabble. Scrabble. Classic. Ticket to Ride. Okay, yeah, good one. Candyland? It's a good one. It's a good one. You can't talk about board games without candy. I don't know that one. Don't see. Oh. Quacks of Thanks, Mouth, is that a board game? Is Mousetrap a board game? It is. There's a board, yeah. Okay, okay. These are some good ones. We're going to have to have some conversations later because I don't know half of these. Um, so uh, I, I have two kids um, who are like elementary, middle school age now. So we played our fair share of like kid board games, but we're transitioning into this like 
more grown-up board games. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna have to get your, your recs a little bit later. But board games are really interesting in our family because, okay, so there's four of us. Um, and of, of the four of us, one of the four does not really enjoy board games in general. That's Drew. <laughs> he doesn't. He still does it, okay? But he just doesn't super enjoy it. And then there's, there's two of the four of us that are just trying to have fun. Like with the family, we're like, we're together, we'll probably have some snacks, like this is great. Now that would be me, and then my youngest daughter, Rowan, who's 10. So we're just trying to have a good time, okay? And then the last of us is a quintessential rule follower. Oh, thank you for that. Now that would be my older daughter, Jolie, who's 12. Her good time is based on playing the game right. So you, now you all are thinking of the good rule follower that you know in your life, right? We all have one of those, the rule follower. Now Jolie has given me permission to share this with you today, so I'm not putting her on blast. I think she's proud of it, actually. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about Jolie, my, my rule follower in my life. So Jolie is the, she's the ordered member of our family, okay? She's the firstborn. She could run the world. I fully expect her to. If you need something organized, if you need something managed, whether it's like a mess in our house or like an event, Jolie is your person, okay? When she was two, she arranged her crayons by color. Like that's how she preferred them. She makes Google Docs spreadsheets for parties that she and her sister Rowan have for their stuffed animals. That's a real story. I'm very serious about that. I can share the Google Doc with you. It was very, it was an Excel sheet. Very organized. Yes. So Jolie is always the banker when we play our, uh, the version of Monopoly that we have, which is called Monopoly Unicorns versus Llamas. You need to check that one out. Okay. And of course, Jolie is the first one to whip out the rule sheet when we, when we open a new game. Okay. Nikki knows this very well. So I was asking Jolie about her love of rules this week, and she very clearly explained to me that she believes that rules in a game or like in a classroom, in a gathering, help to make things fair because they put everybody on the same page, the expectations are clear, and I was like, that makes sense, that makes sense, got it, got it. In their younger, in their younger years, we played a lot of Candyland, Candyland for the win. Um, one of the rules in Candyland is that the youngest player gets to go first to start the game. And I remember that was a rule that Jolie didn't quite understand. Um, I asked her, well, okay, why do we play games? Like, why are we playing games together? Like, is it to follow the rules? Is that what we're doing just blindly? And she, she like, was like, no, we play games to have fun. And I was like, yes, we do. So I asked her how the youngest player rule might help everyone to have fun. And she thought about it for a minute and she said, okay, well, little kids always want to go first. And like sometimes they struggle with the idea of waiting or like taking turns. And so we kind of decided together that maybe this rule was honoring to littler kids to give them the first turn and therefore, that rule helped everyone to be able to engage in the game and have fun, which is the point of the game, right? So rules are important. They do mean something, 
but we don't play games just to follow the rules, right? They only serve a greater purpose, which is to have fun playing a game together. So in our text this week, we are looking at rules. We're looking at law and how this all plays out in real life. So we're going to be asking, like, what, what, what is the purpose of the law? What is the purpose of rules? What role do they have in the kingdom of God? What happens when rules become the end instead of serving and contributing to a much greater purpose? That's in our text today. So we're coming to the end of a series of questioning in our text that Jesus has been subject to in Mark chapter 12. So Jesus and his disciples, they're in Jerusalem for the celebration of Passover. Back in chapter 11, we read about Jesus entering Jerusalem. He like comes in, he makes this bold statement by like turning the, the pomp and the circumstance that might be expected of a military leader on its head and he rides in on a lowly donkey. Remember that? And on this side of the story, we know that within a week, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be put to death after sharing the Passover meal with his disciples. But until then, he's spending his days going to the temple, he's teaching his disciples and any others who are gathered with them. So our text today follows a series of tense interactions between Jesus and the religious authorities. So Jesus criticizes them in the temple for exploitation. He turns over the tables of those selling animals at an unfair price. And then the religious leaders in turn question his authority. Jesus infuriatingly refuses to answer them directly, but then very plainly puts them on blast when he tells a parable about wicked tenants who don't respect the vineyard owner and kill those sent by him, including his son. And then in our text from the, from the past two weeks, that we've been in the past two weeks, Jesus gets like grilled. So the religious leaders ask him about who's required to pay taxes and why or why not. And then they try a, a ridiculous attempt at like a gotcha question by asking Jesus about marriage and the resurrection, even though they didn't really care about that. They were just trying to trick him. So it's one question after another, after another, after another. So that brings us to today's scripture. So Jesus has just shut down this question about marriage and the resurrection. And we've come to verse 28, which reads, One of the scribes came near, heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered the religious authorities well, he asked Jesus, which commandment is the first of all? So the scribe is asking of all the commandments in the law, which one is the most important? And this is a relevant question, I think, given the Jewish context of that day. So there was a tendency within the Jewish tradition of Jesus's day to expand the law into hundreds of laws, um, thousands of rules and regulations. There are some traditions that identified over 600 precepts or laws um, in the Hebrew Bible. And other traditions held that there were more or less, but the point was that there was this insurmountable number of laws that a faithful follower was required to keep. So there's do's and don'ts, there's laws and regulations around purity, around sacrifices, and how could one possibly remember them and then apply them appropriately? Maybe if one could be like prioritized, like if a supreme command could be identified, then that maybe there might be hope of obeying the whole. The scribe wants to know which one is the most important. So it's a question of like first principles. 
So Jesus responds with an answer that has become well-known and is often quoted. This is verse 29. The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So this answer wouldn't have been like particularly surprising for the scribe or for those listening to their interaction. Jesus's answer is actually a combination of two passages from the Old Testament that would already have been well known in his context. So the first passage is from Deuteronomy 6 and it's verses 4 through 5. These verses are also known as the Shema. And the Shema was and still is a foundational liturgy for Judaism. It's both a prayer and it's an affirmation of faith. It affirms the oneness of God and Israel's obligation to love and obey God. And in Jewish homes, this verse was recited twice a day and th this practice was passed down to children and their children and their children in the home. So it's called the Shema after the first word in the verse, which is translated for us into English as hear. Hear, O Israel, Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So Shema is translated as hear. But in the Old Testament, the verbs to listen or like to hear and the verb for to do are not two different words. They're the same word, which is Shema. That's why the prophets chastise Israel when they note that Israel has ears, but they are not listening. They aren't practicing Shema. Hear, hear that the Lord is one. Love God with everything you have. Hear and do Shema. So Jesus answering the scribe's question with the Shema would have been expected, familiar. It's a response that very well could have been given by any other rabbi in the time. But in the text, Jesus goes beyond the scribe's question and gives the second most important commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I guess we might have assumed like that this commandment was combined up like in the first one. Surely loving God involves loving one's neighbor. But it seems that Jesus is not content with love of neighbor as this like implicit add on. So he says it explicitly, second only to the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he proclaims that no other commandment is greater than these two. And then the scribe agrees with him. Verse 32, the scribe said to him, you are right. Teacher, you have truly said that he is one, besides him there is no other, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, this is much more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. These two commandments put together, they're more important than all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices. The rules are not the ultimate point. Remember a few sections ago in chapter 11, Jesus curses a fig tree for not bearing any fruit, and then he clears out the temple court because he doesn't find any fruit there either. Different fruit, but no fruit. 
So sacrifices, burnt offerings were being made in the temple. The rules were being followed that much. But keeping this rule in this way was to the detriment of other people and did not produce the fruit of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus clears them out. The temple system was technically based on law, but as it was exploiting people, it was not meeting the intent of that law. Just like playing a board game with the sole purpose of adhering to the rules of the game misses the point of playing completely. Jesus is making very clear here that he is not going to have anything to do with a piety that only has a Godward dimension. So his combination answer to this question about the greatest commandment, joining loving God and loving neighbor, rules out any religious practice that neglects real human need. The religious leaders have tried repeatedly over and over again to catch Jesus like in a trick question. But his answer is just keep pointing them to understand that following the rules isn't the point of the game. Their view of the law, of God, of God's kingdom is too small. They're just missing the point. They're missing the forest for the trees. In joining these two commandments together, Jesus is making a clear statement about the kingdom of God and its foundation of love. When the scribe agrees with him and affirms Jesus' answer of these two commandments together, Jesus tells him he's not far from the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, everyone and everything flourishes and thrives because everyone and everything are surrounded, encompassed, and nourished by the love of God. And Jesus' response here makes clear that the kingdom of God is directly connected to human thriving because of the nature of God's love. And it makes clear that the command to love God is also an invitation to humanity to thrive. The call is not just God word, but it actually, in fact, has everything to do with one another, too. The author of Mark drives this point home in the second part of our text today by following up this interaction between Jesus and the scribe, the greatest commandment, with two observations that Jesus makes that stand in very stark contrast with one another. So as Jesus is teaching in the temple, he takes the opportunity to continue calling out the fruitlessness of the religious leaders. Okay, so we're continuing. This is verse 38, Mark 12, 38. As he, Jesus, taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses, and for the sake of appearance, say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So remembering the context of the commandments in the first part of today's scripture, Jesus is again emphasizing the difference between religiosity, or following the letter of the law with no regard for the intent of the law. The scribes, those who were responsible for knowing and adhering to the law, to the commandments, were the ones who were technically doing the right things, all while ignoring the command to love their neighbor, which is inextricably tied to loving God. 
Beware, Jesus says, beware of the appearance of a posture pointed towards God, but in substance has no concern for anyone or anything other than oneself to the detriment of other people. So it's after this teaching that Mark writes that Jesus watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then, as if to underline his point about the scribes, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So here Mark uses the word widow twice in a row in these sections of scripture. And we should take notice of that, okay? So remember, Watson said last week, as we have been studying and reflecting upon the gospel of Mark, we've returned to two questions. One is, what is Mark's purpose? And two is, what are Jesus' words? What is the author of Mark's purpose, and what are Jesus' words? So it seems here, in answering both of these questions in the text, we are meant to pay attention to the widow, okay? So in Jesus' time, Widows were among the most vulnerable people in society. So the Greek word used in this text to describe this widow as poor refers actually to those whose poverty had reduced them to begging. Poverty. In the social structure of the time, a woman's familial relationships with men determined her social status. So where she lived, how her household earned a living, what assets she had access to. Those who did not have these vital relationships, like a widow without a husband, or, as is in other places of scriptures, orphans who don't have a father, that male familial relationship, these people were especially vulnerable to losing the social and the material supports that they needed to survive. Widows were socially powerless and honorless in a society that emphasized status and honor. So it's a widow with no power, with no privilege, that Jesus watches dump the last bit of her money into the temple treasury. And she stands here in very stark contrast to the scribes who Jesus critiques for devouring widows' houses for their own gain and saying all these long prayers like they're real holy. This widow has truly given all she has while others give for show. Now, I think it's important to make a note here about uh, this particular story and how it's historically been interpreted and to what end it's been preached. Okay, so we're going to just do, take a little related sidebar. So this story, The Widow's Mite, has typically been used to talk about giving. Okay, like the widow is used as a model to encourage sacrificial giving, to exhort us to give more of our resources, whether that's money or time or skills. Um, to, to do it just like she did. It should cost us something. Like if the widow can give everything that she has to live on, shouldn't we give more because we actually have abundance? Shouldn't we give more? I think it's really important to look at this story in its full context, okay? So we tend to assume that Jesus is commending the widow when he says that she has put in more than all of them. And he does hold her intentionally in contrast with the scribes. But 
in these verses, Jesus actually does not tell us whether he likes the widow's offering or the rich people's offerings. Like we assume that when Jesus points out the widow in the temple, he is implying go and do likewise. But he didn't actually say that. What he did say was that she put in all she owned, all she had to live on. So this widow no longer had anything left to live on. And I think we can honor the faith and the sacrificial nature of the offering of the widow while also recognizing that maybe we're not seeing the whole picture. What if the widow's offering is not an illustration of generosity, but it's actually an illustration of injustice? What if Jesus is pointing out that the widow gave everything that she had and that the temple system and the leaders allowed that to happen? There's a theologian and an activist named Miguel de la Torre, um, and he offers that perhaps Jesus is denouncing a religious social structure that cons the widow out of what little she has, and that when we make this text about giving, we miss the sin of the religious leaders who fleece the poor of the little that they have. Now, just because the widow may not be a role model for sacrificial giving doesn't mean that there's not a time and a place and a scriptural precedent to have that conversation, okay? I'm not saying that. It just means that perhaps this story isn't making that point. The story of the widow's might may not be a call to sacrificial giving, and when we do make it a story about personal giving, we miss that Jesus is talking about community accountability and Jesus is talking about the greatest commandment. Love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself because there is no other commandment that is greater than these. The widow points out this flawed system and she points out the human price of following the letter of the law without regard for the law's intent. And we've seen Jesus consistently point this out in the Gospel of Mark, particularly among the religious leaders. Our centering theme in this section of the Gospel of Mark has been how to really live. How to really live. This is it. To really live is to recognize that we are called to follow Jesus' lead in loving God and loving our neighbor. It means we are called to name and call out oppressive systems that devalue and even thwart human thriving. Church, hold this community accountable to that. Hold the leadership of this church accountable. Ask the Spirit to search you and know your thoughts and reveal your complicity in thwarting the flourishing of all. I think for those of us who have means, who have some access to power and privilege, we are called to recognize the most vulnerable among us as Jesus did when he noticed the widow and to be unequivocally on their side. And for those of us who count ourselves amongst the vulnerable in any category, as there are many, let the widow be a reminder to you that Jesus sees you. Jesus cares about what happens to you. And Jesus desires your flourishing. And when we follow Jesus, we desire your flourishing too. Now church, this is not a guilt trip. It's truly not. I don't want the thing you take with you to be like, do better, be better. 
Um, it's not, I can't stand up here and say that to you. Listen, this week, just this week, I had two interactions with neighbors on the street where I assumed they were gonna ask me for money or some kind of assistance, and I literally cut them off and beelined to my car. This week, twice, the week that I am preaching on loving God and loving neighbor. I can't stand up here and tell you, do better. Just go out and do better. I, I do hope you feel the spirit moving in you. I hope you feel God prompting questions in you. I hope those are challenging questions. I feel those. I can't be the only one. But please don't just hear this as like a, a treatise on how to just do better. Go out there and do better, okay? Friends, the greatest commandment to love God and love others is an invitation to thrive and to flourish. It is an invitation to see the kingdom of God on display in your life and the life of others and every sphere of those lives. The love of God enables everything that we do, even our ability to love God back, even our ability to love those who are made in God's image. We love because God first loved us. And this is the transformative power of the love of God. God's love embraces and it extends out and then it calls whatever it encounters back towards itself, which is towards thriving. It's towards the kingdom. It's towards shalom. It's towards wholeness. And it does cost us. It costs us our comfort. It will cost us our self-sufficiency. Friends, it's going to cost you your control, but it only ever leads to our thriving and the thriving of other people. So when I was chatting with Jolie about rules, we had a conversation about this yesterday. I decided just out of curiosity, she's 12, to ask her what she thought it meant to love God and love our neighbor, just out of pure curiosity. No idea what she was going to say. I once asked my kids what Easter was, um, and they legitimately couldn't answer me years ago. They were like, springtime? Is it family? And I was like, I'm a pastor. I can't believe this is happening to me. <laughs> but I, so I decided to ask Jolie, what do you think it means? What to you does it mean to love God and to love your neighbor? Okay? And she thought about it for a second. And then... She said that it seems like we should just follow God's example. And I was like, what do you, say more, say more. She was like, well, God loves God. God loves God's self and God loves us. Isn't that what this is saying? I was like, mm-hmm, I think that's what it's saying. But come on, that'll preach. Here, Christ City, here, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Here, Christ City, Shema, hear and do. 
Friends, my prayer for us is that we, we, we would be empowered by the love of God to hear the invitation to heed these commandments, to heed this law, these rules, and pursue the kingdom by loving God, by loving our neighbors, and by loving ourselves. Let me pray for us. God, we come to you this morning recognizing that, um, that you loved us first, that the commandments that you have given us to love you and to love others um, is not something that you haven't done first. It's not something that uh, Jesus didn't model while Jesus was uh, here also. God, it's, um, it can be complicated, um, and there are ways where we just fail at it, and um, we ask God for, um, for the prompting of your spirit. Would you help us to understand what you mean by this? Uh, in our times alone with you, would your spirit be teaching us? God, I ask for your spirit to be moving in this community, that we would be teaching and learning from one another about what this means. God, I pray against, uh, I pray protection against guilt. I pray protection against uh, the feel that we need to earn something. Um, I pray, God, that you would enable us to keep our eyes on uh, the bigger picture, which is not the rules, um, but it is love and your kingdom. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for calling us into your love. I pray that uh, our hearts would be open to what you're saying to us and that they would be soft to be able to receive it. In your name, amen.